0: So for me, in a book like Dissident Gardens, the idea that you're a vessel of this gigantic, intangible movement that's happening, that you are part of a revolution even if no one else will believe you that it's about to come, to me that's as, as tripped out as any uh, fantastic vision I could ever have offered. <music>
1: I'm Raihan Salam, and this is The Vice Podcast. I'm joined today by Jonathan Lethem, author, most recently, of Dissident Gardens.
0: Jonathan, thanks very much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Were you always a storyteller? Maybe at some level, but I was a, a visual artist first. My father is a painter. He's still, still making art, actually. I was with him yesterday looking at some of the, some slides of his new work. And I grew up thinking I was going to make... Sculptures, paintings, drawings, and and doing and making a lot of them. So the storytelling kind of snuck in uh, under the radar. I wonder. So
1: in the household, was this a thing where the implements for the making of art were just present?
0: They were just part of the scene, and so you gravitated to sure. them naturally. I I grew up, you know, wanting to get into my dad's studio. The way you you know the way the grown up stuff seems seems cool to you. And some of my early uh, like you know home movies show me, you know painting on on his walls um, but um, yeah it was very natural and you know there were books around too we were a house full of kind of cultural stuff and um, certainly I was taking in stories and thinking about stories in a lot of different ways too but what I conceived when I first wanted to create something was all, all along the lines of what was uh, most obvious to me which was to you know to draw and I was I was kind of good at it I inherited a facility I could I could impress the grown ups with my you know my little drawing, so um, I had every encouragement
1: to do that. were you impressing them with the faithfulness of the drawing? Was it that you were drawing things that renderings that just seemed really you know s- stylish
0: but also you know kind of accurate or was it more well i could i could do I could do life observation uh, and and i i was I was pretty good at it, but I think also you know I was inventive and expressive with, with the materials, which which was how my father painted. He 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 could do a life drawing, but he tended in his paintings, in his serious work, to make things... Uh, you know, he was an expressionist. It was visionary. It had some distorted or imagined element as well. And so I was doing both of those things. So you grew up in a household in which culture,
1: broadly understood, was a central preoccupation. Did your parents come from a universe
0: in which that had also been true? Well, they'd both fought themselves into that space, I think, you know, in different ways. My, uh, my mother's upbringing had been very uh, oriented towards higher education, and books were revered. Um, but she dropped out of college and kind of ran away to the uh, Greenwich Village folk scene. So she was, you know, dabbling with the counterculture before there was a uh, a counterculture, or when you know when it was only a nascent one, and my father, in a way, you know, was even more of a, a black sheep. He came from a large Midwestern family that, you know, didn't really know what art was, or didn't didn't uh, didn't have any close uh, relationship to it. And he somehow conceived this this life for himself, and you know, moved to New York and studied painting at Columbia and became. Part of the that world, you know, which New York was where it was at. It's
1: it's neat to think about how they wrested themselves from their familiar environs and from what had been a source of stability to thrust themselves into this different world. And then you're born into this milieu that feels,
0: you know, pretty open and yeah, encouraging it's a h- of creativity. Huge head start for me, I was. Was, but was it a head start, or was it actually? Oh yeah, not a head absolutely. Start? No, I mean, when I <laughs> compare notes with other writers, I think so many people have to fight for the um, just to just to believe that it's something that normal people do, that they can choose to do, you know. And for me, that world of you know deciding to make art was never esoteric or remote. It was always sort of like, sure, okay, your father goes into the studio every day, uh, you know, no one. He doesn't need permission. He's not even necessarily always getting a lot of attention for it or getting paid for it. But it's a choice you can make. It's allow- You're allowed. And I just took it as a given. So I didn't have to make that leap of self-invention from as far a distance, I guess, as... A lot of artists
1: do. Disciplined Gardens is a book about utopians of various stripes, uh, and also, you know, in some cases, very militant, very serious utopians yeah. who are kind of think of themselves as leftists, think of themselves as part of a this larger family. Um, and I wonder—I mean, it sounds that you grew up in a kind of bohemian, open, culturally minded milieu. Uh, but would you say that there was any kind of resonance
0: between these oh, kinds yeah. of environments? Yeah, no, I, I grew up in a. a, a family that thought of itself as uh activists and and I went to demonstrations when I was a kid and um you know took took it for granted that there was always sort of a very strong point of view <laughs> on any contemporary issue you know I mean when I first came of age I'm I'm old enough now I can remember the Vietnam war and when we were still you know uh, you know in a way our like daily life was saturated with this this belief that we were living in opposition to this, you know, uh, thing that our government was doing. So yeah, it's very much a part of my my bloodstream.
1: One thing I find interesting about this is that so being saturated. In an oppositional culture, mm-hmm. I mean, there's something funny about that because the discourse of the oppositional culture assumes that there's some kind of mainstream yeah. that exists in the world, and yet you're in this milieu where that mainstream yeah. isn't really asserting itself; it isn't yeah. really running your life. Well, I
0: grew up with all kinds of uh, very vibrant and very, you know, dense marginal identities. I, partly the structure of the city, you know, being from Brooklyn and Manhattan was over there, but then also, you know knowing, being able to grasp at a certain point that New York was a special condition, you know, that it wasn't typical of of American identity in every way. It was very important to it, but it wasn't the, you know, the the average. It wasn't typical. And um, I learned this because we would go to the Midwest to visit my father's relatives. I had this big extended family, uh, you know, kind of scattered around the middle of the country.
1: Is this more the kind of
0: Lutheran... German, kind of northern well, Midwest? Uh, well, Protestant or Scottish background, mm. but mm-hmm. you know, very, five, six generations in, very much a part of the heartland. Kind of bleak northerly landscapes? Well, yeah, just the prairie, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, wasn't, um, it wasn't the Great Lakes Midwest, it mm-hmm. was Iowa and Missouri. Um, so prairie, you know, farmland, acres of corn, and you know, uh, Basically, my uncle's my father's brothers all kind of went into business of various kinds It's neat that those
1: ties weren't severed. It's neat that actually, despite you know the the fact that your your father obviously went in a very different direction, he felt connected oh yeah to that no landscape. I
0: mean in terms of the the familial connection, he was never disaffected from his family he He'd made choices that fascinated them, but it was a it's a very warm, still is a very warm embracing uh sprawling family with a lot of different kinds of outliers in it, so you know. My dad was just one of those, but there was never a sense of um, a rupture, mm. and um, and I'm very grateful for that. It means that, you know, compared to people with the kinds of affiliations that I wear on my sleeve, the kinds of, that people recognize in me, like being a New Yorker, you know, being a Bohemian, uh, growing up, you know, well, not religiously Jewish, but in kind of the cultural Jewish mm. stuff of New York, that people typically look at me and think, oh, well, you don't know anything about what Missouri is like. Well, actually, I, you know, I, I know a whole lot about it, and that has has um, been a gift for me. But, um, you know, uh, yeah, I was very conscious of being from strong, like, mar- strong marginal positions would be the way to put it, and that the counterculture in the years that I was first coming into consciousness, the 60s, early 70s, felt so... Uh, unified. It did it anyway to a kid. It felt like one big giant thing that was, you know, it was the Age of Aquarius. We were changing the world, and it was going to continue forever that way. So when it's amazing that you were so cognizant of this <laughs> stuff. I mean, because you were you were obviously well, quite small, but, couldn't have articulated yeah. it at the time. But um, you know, by the time I was eleven, twelve, thirteen, I mean, I remember when Nixon was reelected in seventy two, and what a jolt it was to me because. I couldn't imagine who what kind of human human being was voting for for Nixon, but the it was a landslide you know the other side had, had been um, had been humiliated and then I had to sort of reframe and begin, begin to understand that where I was from culturally was only one one sample
1: did it feel frightening I mean just the thought of you know thinking of yourself as Being in this strong position, this unified, larger culture of people who are making positive change, kind of lionizing your own parents, even if only implicitly, and the world of which they were a part, and then suddenly having this shock, and this takes you outside
0: of that. Well, you know, every kid kind of thinks his family is the entire world for a while. And every kid, no matter what their family is like culturally or politically, how normative or how eccentric, uh, has to start to make that triangulation Oh, like, wait a minute. My parents are really specific, and not everyone's like that and There's a big world out there and I could even like sample from some of the other stuff but no i was I wasn't threatened when i s- when I understood my parents weren't uh in the total majority. I got it, but I was prone as they were as you know as people in the counterculture who you know who weren't children who were just true believers, you know, when Reaganism comes along and the 70s rolls into the 80s, and some parts of what had happened got so, uh, you know, vilified, and there was such a powerful rollback, uh, you know, what we now call the culture wars, right? And, um, but also, in putting aside like cultural signifiers, just in real economic terms that, you know, we weren't going to be an egalitarian society, that the kind of the FDR, Lyndon Johnson, you know, great society, you know, that we would end up here where we are with this like nightmarish, you know, 1%, the disparity between the, the, the rich and poor being so <laughs> grotesque as it is now. I also wonder about
1: the fraying of the world of self-governing communities, mm-hmm. you know, the, the communes that people formed. Well, because I wonder if yeah. that's, that's kind of a parallel discourse. You know, when you think about the history of the kibbutzim in Israel, right. uh, you know, to some degree, you know, it starts out with um, this tremendous high-mindedness. And then there are just these deep questions about how does a family work and intimacy right. and just and safety and security. And you wonder if this historical drama you're describing there was a parallel drama of people realizing that these
0: utopias they were building were disappointing. Oh, sure. In I mean, ways. utopia is a very insupportable <laughs> notion yeah. by de- by definition. It's like beautiful to reach for it, and it's prone to these kind of uh, fractional, <laughs> you know, uh, conflicts and to to just collapse under the under the weight of wishful thinking, under the weight of what reality, undertow of reality, the way reality is always humbling our our, our visions for ourselves and, and for our families and societies with all kinds of uh hard lessons. But I also think that, you know, something you just were bumping against there in that in that question. I mean is a really huge change and a really hard one to define, but I think it's everywhere, is the the slow incremental loss of the idea of the commons. You know, forget communes or Kibbutzes, or or any other specific uh, utopian experiment, but what about the the great American utopian experiment of a society that included, you know, things like the highway system or the post office or or parklands, things that weren't corporatized, weren't privatized. There wasn't a fast lane for the rich people to go on. That they were that we we've watched this very steady. Incremental destruction of the idea of a commons in our society.
1: I also wonder how this relates to the idea of inclusion. And one of the central preoccupations of your work has been actually reaching outside of Mm -hmm. your narrow experience, but to think about people, for example, you know, growing up in Brooklyn in an environment where you have this community of. Bohemians, most of whom were white. And then you have this community of blacks. And these were peop- both groups were migrants. Yeah. And these were both people who had been displaced in various ways. And then this juxtaposition. Right. And then this idea of how do we knit together some kind of common community. Yeah. And you know, one thing I wonder about when you're talking about you know, this idea of the commons and a shared community, reconciling that with the fact that different people are going to have different relationships to these larger categories of the mainstream or mm-hmm. Bohemia or whatever else rooted in these different kinds of defensiveness and whatever else. I mean, I wonder,
0: did you start detecting that tension early in life? And was this something— Well, was- maybe subconsciously. I mean, you know, or or I just couldn't have named any of that stuff. But um, I think that, you know, the idea of inclusion, the idea of participation, the idea of community was—you know, it was thrust— Being engaged with this stuff was kind of thrust on me, because the neighborhood I I grew up in was such a crossroads. You know, I mean, speaking of a commons, well, not by design, but just by historical accident, where I was from was a neighborhood that had no definite, you know, bottom line identity. It wasn't like this place was, you know, an enclave of, let's say, Puerto Ricans or Hmm. or anything in any original sense. It was a Place that was being, you know, claimed at different times by different people, and it was always under ne- sort of negotiation. You know, what is this block going to be like? What's this one going to be like? Who does it belong to? What's its social temperature? What's its economic reality? And I came to see, you know, it as a microcosm of, obviously, you know, you could take it as an allegory of some sort of pure American experience because, right, who does this place belong to? Yeah, um, and just the, what are the claims. claims of displacement. Yeah. There is this neat book.
1: Um, it's very jargony. It's very dense. Uh, but it's called The Invention of Brownstone, Brooklyn. And uh-huh. one of the things that's most striking about it, and it, it actually ends, in the late 70s and it talks about the idea that what you had this space mm-hmm. called South Brooklyn right. and then at the end of it you have you know Boreham Hill you have Carroll Gardens yeah. etc but that actually the space was actually super local it really was about street to street block to block Absolutely. and there was kind of this things were being kind of designed,
0: designed by individuals i mean I, I growing up i knew the i knew the the woman who made up the name Borum Hill hmm. and <laughs> began offering it to people as the you know uh, the way to understand this set of blocks that they were living on and, to, and, and by by the it. idea of inventing a tradition, you know, yeah. kind of the idea of something is wow. our historical identity. But also, by it. implication, it was a partition. It was saying, therefore, you here should feel differently and feel separated from the people on the other side of this line that we're drawing, which, as you point out, didn't exist before. <laughs> it seems like an amazing education to have, in a way. Yeah. So that,
1: I mean, so actually, when you encounter this now, when you encounter that That landscape and how much it's changed, and how central Mm -hmm. this slice of Brooklyn that was, you know, part of your upbringing has become to the American
0: imagination. How does it's peculiar? Yeah, I think I ended up by, by weird luck. uh, I mean, not to claim my experience as some sort of like, um, you know, you know, exceptional one, but in terms of writing or documenting that particular neighborhood, I accidentally became the last of the old Brooklyn writers and the first of the new. I was like a watershed uh, in, in, in the sense that the idea of, you know, when I grew up, if you read about Brooklyn in fiction or if you just put your ear to the street and listened to the mythos, um, it was all about, you know, getting out. <laughs> it was basically a, a place that you wanted to kind of find a way to graduate from. Uh, it was It was like this, you know, swamp of ethnic immigrant experience where you kind of pulled yourself off and pushed the muck away and then got across the bridge and made yourself into something. I mean, we all know this, this myth from things as elemental as like Saturday Night Fever, right? You know, like crossing the bridge becomes this big episode, it, you know, where life it could life could be different. You don't have to be bogged down with the... the old expectations of the old neighborhood and the fact that it's such a destination now and so so, um, it's amazing also when you think
1: about the slice of historical time we're talking about because mm-hmm. you think about the teens and the twenties you have people in these teeming tenements they empty out you come to brooklyn you have breathing room and yet suddenly within the space, in the in the imagination of the larger imagination, and also in lived reality, it becomes the shtetl. You know what I mean? Or it just becomes, yeah. you know, this kind of place of ethnic enclaves and yeah. sort of this kind of tight control. And then that
0: unraveling and then the idea of it becoming a destination or something yeah. like that. Yeah. So, I mean, but it also, the pace of change, I mean, the the stuff that I isolated when I was writing really directly about that gentrification is already itself ancient history. I mean, the the, the things that have uh, happened economically to well Boram Hill specifically in the last five years, it's changed as much again as it did in the in the period of time that I was trying to you know put my my brain around. It's 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 gaudy now. I mean it's really it's been taken to an absurd level where the the houses are you know all filled with movie stars because it's become like a fetish to live there, and that's different. That's different again from just an ordinary gentrification. Because
1: Dissident Gardens begins in Queens, and it begins in an apartment complex that was very much a redoubt of the left, I want to know a little bit about your map of New York from this earlier period of your life. Because Mm -hmm. I imagine, you know, being a Brooklyn kid, I mean, Queens was this different animal, and it was obviously yeah. kind of a conjuries, it was a kind of like a, a mishmash. But what was your sense of Queens? Because I, it seems like it's kind of this alternate place, right? Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, having written about this environment with which you're yeah. more familiar, I wonder about your sense
0: of, of Queens. Well, I went there in a very specific way. I went to Sunnyside, which is the place I've written about, because my grandmother lived there. So I saw it through her eyes, and I, 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 I took it into my body, in, in, even in ways that I couldn't define, but just as... On, on her terms, and she had a very proprietary, uh, you know, chip on the shoulder kind of air uh, uh, to her. You know, she loved the city, and she was very proud of her identity as a New Yorker. She also found Queens, I think, kind of mawkish and embarrassing in certain ways, and she was, for I mean, just as a very specific example, she was adamant that none of, that neither my mother nor none of the grandchildren would ever have, like, a New York accent. She mocked the kind of street, you know, the the deep Queens or deep Brooklyn accent that you might hear. In you know what she, what she wanted to do was, in a way, renovate, you know, her private experience and Manhattanize her private experience, even if she was in this suburban precinct. Um, but you know, speaking as someone who's you know, uh, intentionally and also inadvertently just absorbed a lot of the history and, and, and the underlying kind of, uh, I'm not sure what to call it, you know, gestalt or mythos of New York City, there's a really, really big difference between Brooklyn identity and Queens identity. And that is that Brooklyn was a rival city with a separate center and a separate self-definition. Now, it might not have thought, you know, it was at that time it would, be, would have been called New York. It might not have thought that it was the full equal to New York City. Which was Manhattan, but it was nevertheless autonomous and very defiant and very proud, and had its own institutions. You know, its own uh, you know political corruption, its own uh, you know its great own historical, historical society, its own historical museum, its, its, own own yeah. its own museum, its own great restaurants, its own everything. And then it was um, it was partitioned. You know, it's almost like a Palestinian territory or something. You know, it, it becomes uh, absorbed and 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 humbled in you know in what was probably a rigged election, right? Uh, Three hundred votes. Yeah. So, Vietnam. so there's this broken, uh, but still defiant, uh, autonomous identity that is
1: broken. You said that so wonderfully. I I have to say this really means a lot <laughs> to you. me to hear you say that. Thank okay.
0: you and And even for people who don't know this story and haven 't heard this story, I think that that DNA of that that uh, grievance is part of brooklyn's legacy, if you grow up there, and it reproduces itself in certain ways, so that when um, you know, for instance, in the '50s, the Dodgers Leave, which is a story many more people are familiar with, it's like we was robbed you know there's this sense that Brooklyn is a place that where a greatness was stolen from it. And Queens has none of this uh, difficulty in relationship to its uh, identity, to the greatness of the city as a whole. It's because it never is proposed as a rival. It's essentially a giant bedroom community. It's, It's the first suburb, you know. And Queens makes itself in its relation to uh, you know, being the place where the workers live, that feeds and nourishes, and you know, empties the ashtrays, and the subway system is designed so that you just scoot in and out, and you know, uh, doesn't cluster around. You know, in Brooklyn, you see the subways all gnarled together around mm-hmm. Borough Hall. There's the old City Center is still, uh, still being written in the in the subway map. In Queens, you just have these long lines, very evenly spaced, designed to. Make the suburb accessible and functional, and you know it's also it's a developer's scam. The subway in, in Queens tells another story, which is that people sold those farmlands, you know, in private deals to people who were um, uh, who knew where the subway was going to be. You know, someday there'll be something here, but they were they were building subway stations in what was essentially swampland or farmland, you know, and then the the, the people arrived subsequently. So it's not like they're servicing an existing city; they're making one. They're declaring this space and saying what it's going to be. So Queens is kind of uh, homely in its and and subsidiary in its deep, you know, deep hmm. relation to the to the city at large. Um, and it has this uh, spatial quality. You know, things happen there because of the. Um, it's unf- polycentric. I mean, I think that's it's one. It's polycentric, of it, you know. but it's also. Its, its um, distinctive features all have to do with uh, what you can d- do if you're planning a wa- something while it's still all wide open spaces. So you end up with the World's Fair, and you end up with Flushing Meadows, and you end up with these giant cemeteries, You know, which you can't squirrel those kinds of things into an existing city. You know, Brooklyn and Manhattan were already too yeah. uh, densely constructed. But if you're planning a place from scratch, you can... Allocate these jobs. and then there are the interstices, zones. and the, the things. I mean, that you, kind you of have the, aerop- the airports yeah. is another one. Absolutely,
1: you know? the classic kind of marginal or liminal kind of. Right. You know, I wonder um, when you were talking about your grandmother and her cultural aspirations, or rather her cultural standards mm-hmm. and the rigor of those standards. Yeah. I wonder about this kind of high-culture egalitarianism, you know, because it's kind of— It's very tricky. It's very tricky. Yeah, so you're talking about people who are very connected to these very romantic ideas about the working class uh, and about inclusion and about the idea of bridging divides and the idea of the artificiality of these divides, and yet also
0: there's obviously this kind of exclusion and And cultural capital— And elitism and a a snobbery. Well, uh, one way to understand this is as a a secular mirror to Jewish— tribal identity, which is um, the people of the book, elevated, you know, deeply concerned with justice and fairness, but, you know, obsessed also with social hierarchy and with making oneself better, you know, becoming the doctors and the lawyers with elites and, and considering itself an elite by dint of its commitment to these ideals, which is a tricky, you know, a tricky stew once you try to transfer it to uh, a belief in the people, right? Did your
1: parents think of themselves as upwardly mobile, downwardly mobile, in a romantic kind of way, or
0: did they not think in those terms? They wouldn't have thought in those terms. I mean, my I, my parents, I think, they they wouldn't have identified with the term bohemian, which I think somehow was, you know, in their generation, in the 50s, it was, you know, suggested somehow like a code word for something kind of decadent or, you know, possibly uh, homosexual, Mm -hmm. kind of um, deliberate, uh, fey, or cultivated. Or also Uh, perhaps not sufficiently political. Well, certainly not. Not political. Bohemianism doesn't sound political. And it sounds sort of put on, like a kind Mm -hmm. of, you know, uh, velvet slippers or something. But in fact, I mean, I think that's the right word for the way they lived their lives. Uh, They were, what they identified with, was that they were artists and activists, and the the commitment to a life, both making art and being on the front lines of protest, simply dictated what? Yeah, I guess somebody might might have called downward mobility of a certain kind. But they weren't coming down from that far, you know. I mean, what they were really were were uh, anti authoritarian, because the For people like my parents, the obvious avenue for self-improvement, I mean, they weren't going to become doctors or lawyers, and they weren't going to become wealthy by any other terms unless, you know, my father had the rare luck of becoming a famous artist, which is, you know, he might have liked to, but it doesn't happen to very many people. But the way that people very much like my parents normally uh, stabilize, gentrify, enter the, let's say, the secure middle class is through academia. My mother was a college dropout, but she was one of those literate people I or anyone ever met. Very, very uh, much the type who would have flourished if she'd stayed in college and given herself, herself that kind of typical opportunity. Uh, and my father was specifically a college professor. I mean, he'd, he'd gotten his, his master's. He was a, a Fulbright uh, scholar. And in Kansas City, teaching at the Kansas City Art Institute, he basically lost his tenure-track teaching position over his commitment to the uh, Students Against Vietnam. He lent, he, uh, they needed a faculty representative in order to become an official campus uh, s- student society. You needed one, one co-signee who was on the faculty. He gave himself to that and then began counseling his uh, draft eligible students to run away to Canada and lost his job. And from then on, he worked as, you know, he was still painting, but he worked as a carpenter and, um, you know, sometimes did teaching, but only in um, in marginal ways. He taught in prisons. He taught at youth centers. So he had been on track to be a college professor. He was one. So it was their anti-authoritarianism or anti-institutionalism uh, that exiled them from... The the way that that people very much like them would have tended uh, to um, to enter the middle class a very typical decision of course in their generation there were lots of dropouts I mean it was a it was a social movement to throw over you know to see even academia as uh, insufferably bureaucratic and institutional not something you could abide with.
1: Well, it's also just the precedents that were created and the way that new hierarchies arise out of these new ways of life. That's what's so striking, because you think about these, you know, an elite research institution, Mm -hmm. and then looking at this moment, and then trying to capitalize it on on it in various ways, or just thinking that, you know, let's elevate, let's lionize these figures who are these dissidents, and then let's just assimilate them completely into this, and then, like, you know, let's give them markers, those who are sufficiently successful, let's give them markers of prestige and then yeah. reassert our legitimacy somehow.
0: So, you know, I think that- So, well, you, it creates this paradox, right? Are mm-hmm. the tenured radicals of the the generation sort of just following my father's era of in, involvement in academia, are those, are the, is that great generation of tenured radicals who are teaching everyone now and defining the temper of so many institutions still, but were they, was that like a, a giant, buy-off, were they defanged by, by being incorporated into... So these, you went to college, I mean, and you... Well, I dropped discussion. out, <laughs> actually. I took their example in, in a... Uh, I didn't think of it as, oh, I'm going to be just like them. But although, I, you know, my, my mother's defiance about never finishing college was certainly, uh, it was an available, you know, uh, model for me. But no, I, did, I was, uh, you know, a lot of ways I reproduced their... Uh, their MO. Did you start with high hopes? Did you start with uh, some? Well. Uh, no, I think that in, I mean, I got into college, first of all, I was still a painter. I got into college with, with a portfolio of um, examples of my artwork. And, and you expect- went to a famously experimental. And I went to an eccentric kind of place, school that I thought was going to be accommodating to my fitful relationship to, you know. I'd already been indulged in a way because I went to high school of music and art in, in New York City. And I was I was a success in my art classes and sort of in my English classes as well because I liked books. But, I, you know, I stopped taking math or science at a certain point, and I got away with it. So I was I – was well, I mean, I, there weren't that many colleges I could have gotten into. And Bennington seemed to me to be – maybe it would, you know, be accommodating. But the thing that happened to me going to Bennington was that I thought I was going to uh, – an art school for freaks like me, but I found that I was at a school for um, the rich children, the black sheep of private school families whose other, you know, their siblings were all at, you know, Harvard or Brown or Yale, and, and these were the, the, the druggies and the, and, the, the, and the artists and very interesting students. I mean, lots of people who I still know and like, but there was a general atmosphere of privilege that was really alien to me and alienating. I just didn't I didn't I I I it, I think I'd managed to avoid confronting the real truth about how much privilege was out there.
1: When I think about black identity in New York right now, I think about this huge foreign-born share of the black population, huge Haitian population, mm-hmm. West African population, etc. It's just tr- enormously diverse. And separate from that, diversity in terms of national origin, uh, foreign-born, et cetera. Yeah. You have this other parallel diversity of um, you know, new identities, kind of you know, post-60s, post-70s. Mm-hmm. Move, and just the idea of having the freedom to be many different things. Whereas in Distant Gardens, you portray this slice of black New York mm-hmm. rubbing up against this slice of, I guess, you know, leftist or bohemian, yeah. non-black, you right. know, white New York. And I wonder, I mean, so you, you devoted years to researching this book. And mm-hmm. I wonder just kind of your thoughts about that universe of, of the black New York that existed, you know, during these decades you described in the novel. I yeah. mean, how, and how that's...
0: Well, yeah, I mean, the, the, the culture of, uh, let's say, of color, as I came to know it, was so deeply, deeply defined by the civil rights movement. You know, growing up in the late 60s and early 70s, there was this, you know, I mean, the essential argument could be encapsulated in the, the shift in energy from, you know, a, a Martin Luther King model or a Jackie Robinson model to a Malcolm X, you know, Black Panther, Eldridge Cleaver model. But it was about this idea, you know, you also had it in the popular culture, that there was a black experience. You know, you you felt it in the presence of someone like, you know, Bill Cosby or the behavior of the black athletes at the Olympics in the 70s. That there was just a really definite thing that had come into its own and exposed a very raw edge and was very, um, you know, uh, had had needed a, a kind of a uh, a leg up from liberal and often very specifically Jewish you know alliances, but that was now um, you know well, you know the james brown song i don 't want nobody to give me nothing open up the door i 'll get it myself." this idea that you know uh, certain black performers or or institutions were going to make themselves all black, you know. No, thank you. I'm going to do it myself. And um, so this is unfolding when you were a thinking person. I mean, when sure, you were like an absolutely, early adolescent. You're seeing this happen. And you know, I also think that one of the things I felt by the time I'd finished writing *The Fortress of Solitude* that I understood about the, you know, one of the, and dis, this is very true in *Dissident Gardens*. That, you know, when you're c- contemplating the 20th century in American life and the Accomplishments of various revolutions, or or liberation movements, or or um, social movements for social justice or equality—they're always so distressingly uh, both a you know a giant victory and a and a giant defeat. And the the way that the civil rights era became, uh, you know, this story that I grew up believing that my family was like an emblem of championing this happening, and it was so great, and now we were all going to live together, and it was all going to be great. An well, emblem of civil rights and sure, social justice and just, the idea of bridging divides. Yeah, absolutely. That, that you, know, um, you know, my parents had been at the March on the Mall. I'd been there in utero myself. I was born a few months later, right? Uh, it was my first Dylan gig. But um, that, uh, that we were part of a story that included our black neighbors, and that they understood that and we understood that. And then by the time of the 70s, and when I'm in school with kids from the projects, knowing, in a way of course I couldn't have articulated, it it took me 30 years to even begin to define the questions, let alone have answers for them, that their lives were still distressingly separate, and that my options were so many so much larger automatically and that you know poverty was accomplishing so much of what the Jim Crow laws had been been in place to accomplish uh w- without the help of the laws that there was a underclass and it was so extensively black and that this wasn't going to change because of our all our good intentions or congratulating ourselves for, you know, um, having, you know, black people in baseball or on our television set, that that wasn't the same thing as the lives of all the people that I was in school with, but was still, I was still so separate from in terms of trajectories and, and opportunities and self-possibilities for self-definition and self-invention that, that the promises were so disastrously, you know, the promises of the civil rights movement were so unkept as well as, you know,
1: uh, manifest. It's also interesting just to think about how oppressive that idea of a shared identity can be, not to everyone, but to some. Mm -hmm. And just the idea that, and the responsibility that flows from the idea of solidarity, because, you know, My broad sense is that when you look at the landscape of early 21st century America, you are not necessarily delighted by the inequality and whatever else. You certainly don't sound particularly stoked about it, one might say. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, another way of looking at it is that when you think about the fragmentation of some of these identities and you think about the demands of solidarity Mm -hmm. and the idea of being liberated from some of those demands and being able to carve out a different kind of space and what that means in terms of subjective human freedom, and it just, you know, one, uh, uh, because I wonder, you know, one of your characters to be a black police officer, yeah, with a family, a police officer of all things, uh, and the and the burden of that, yeah. and then to make this break, I wonder where the
0: inspiration for that came from. I don't even mean in, in any biographical sure, sense, but just I mean course. sort of in terms of yeah. Well, I mean, I I think that I I became very in identified really powerfully with, I guess, you know, the singer in The Fortress of Solitude is another one of these characters, the generation of black men who's, who, who's, who were, would have been the fathers of my friends and who were given this, in the 50s, early 60s, given this opportunity to claim full they were told they were being given the opportunity, you know, sort of the Jackie Robinson moment, right, to assume adulthood in this new society and how devastating so many of those lives were because of the legacy they'd grown up inside and the perplexities of what was still incomplete, what is still incomplete. And and yet, you know, and we're talking about people like James Brown or Richard Pryor, or you know, or the anyone in the generation uh, in the in in the government, you know, the the Colin Powells or or you know, or a police officer in New York City who aspires to be more than a beat cop, you know, like like my character, but becomes a lieutenant and becomes you know, a figure of authority, even as he walks down a given street in Queens or anywhere in the city probably and absorbs the hatred and disdain of, you know, mediocre, you know, human types who nonetheless believe they can basically lord it over any black person. And he has to somehow conjure up the dignity to invest in the authority that his job awards him, but it's like a daily construction job to 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 take that role, to take that place, to shrug off the uh the legacy. And the exhaustion. And the exhaustion. Yeah. And then yeah, you know, so he's he's a character that means a lot to me. Uh he's you know he's almost the loneliest character in the whole book. And it's a it's a book with a lot of lonely characters in it. Um, because then of course what he discovers is that the way so many of his fellow black policemen have accommodated to the almost unbearable pressures and paradoxes is by becoming corrupt policemen. Well, that's hardly you know uh, unique. It's and it's not only a, a, a you know it's it's it was very very widespread corruption in the in the NYPD. You have stories like Serpico uh, that tell you about. Um, how lonely it would be to stand in opposition to that culture and so you know he tries to divide himself uh from the being enmeshed in the, the kind of conspiracy of of being on the on the pad as they would call it back then or on the take and his
1: son is someone who in Many respects achieves this kind of esteem that's offered to someone who enters the institutions, Mm -hmm. who gets an Ivy League degree, and so you know this kind of esteem that was just out of reach, that seemed to be this promise. This promise is realized Mm -hmm. in the next generation, yeah, and and yet it's not.
0: Well, yeah, his son faces the the horrible uh, crossroads of realizing that no matter how articulate. How uh, indignant! How prideful his um, his intellectual, you know, uh, identity can be, and he's you know he's a kind of a commanding intellect, and and um, takes takes shit from no one, but his function institutionally is as a kind of almost like a good luck charm when he thinks of it in the worst possible way. He's a talisman of otherness, you know? And um, I don't think this is easy to resolve. And the indignity
1: that flows from that sense of not being treated as a person, but rather as a talisman. I wonder about you as a writer and how you think about bodies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I specifically, you know. so the character we were just discussing, uh, Cicero, he is fat. Yeah. And just as someone who is tuned into hierarchies, I wonder when you look at the way that our culture has changed, one thing I'm struck by, at least, uh, is that there is an opportunity there is permeability yeah. for some people who have the right kind of body. You think yeah. of now the, the crudest way of putting this is that there are certain physiognomies uh, that uh, you know. For for example, if you're if you're black, if you're a person of um, you know with a dark complexion, certain physiognomies that might nevertheless be seen as appealing. You know, kind of when you have this kind of euro kind of yeah. frame of mind. And I just kind
0: of wonder about is is that something that's and obviously someone who is visual. You know. Yeah. However, sure. Important. No, I think about. I think about this stuff all the. I mean, one of my great, you know, um, uh, uh, obsessions is the idea that we, congr- everywhere, congratulate ourselves for our sophistication and our our, our diversity and our, you know, uh, kind of postmodern irony and cynicism and jadedness, but actually we're extremely innocent. And Victorian and deeply conformist culture right now, in many ways, with this like a kind of veneer of sophistication that is the enabling, you know, gauze that we that we peer at, at, at ourselves through. Um, but um, you reproduce
1: the hierarchies, you reinforce the hierarchies. Of course,
0: they're so. You recruit powerful. The, yeah.
1: those who fit
0: naturally into yeah. them. Yeah. And then at the same time, I yeah. I, you asked about bodies, and I do think about the. I mean, you know the the great let's let's you know act as if it, we all know what 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 this is it's been you know uh discussed in various frameworks but the great jewish black alliance at some point breaks down along in some ways along a very raw physical uh you know crossroads where the Jews can assimilate to whiteness and the blacks can't the bodies Say we're not we're not in this together anymore, <laughs> which is weird. You know, it's like don't don't act like I have your option to assimilate. So of course, I guess you know Cicero's heaviness. You know, I wanted to make him as obstreperous and as impossible to uh, get a frame around as po- you know as as could be for himself and for the reader. He's like a, a a big problem, <laughs> so it's a way of of manifesting the the bigness of what a problem he is right and um but i think I guess I think about this a lot the feeling as different, as much a dissident, as alienated as I do, and yet having you know i mean right now i'm 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 dressed in certain ways that demarcate uh that I'm not like a businessman right and I've got my I've got my little stubble. but I mean, It's almost I, official. It's I almost could, a theory. Maybe, yeah, mean. maybe. But I could also, you know, uh, go to Brooks Brothers and get a razor, and I could probably stroll into, you know. I mean, my otherness is not born by my body. I don't, whatever I identify with or however I feel in relation to the society at large, I'm not saddled with you know uh uh-huh. that experience and i and I, and yet i think about it all the time so i i guess i made a character who claims you know about five different kinds of he's like a a, a multiple disaster site of uh you know un forbidden yeah. <laughs> otherness. Well, and he, and he yeah. pushes it farther. He grows the dreadlocks, you know? Yeah.
1: I mean, it's, it's when you think about the idea that, gosh, if only you accommodated us along this dimension, you know, then you would be welcomed with open arms or then, you know, this. Yeah. And you think about, you know, that I, I ask about bodies partly because given your visual background, given yeah. how central that was to your early life and your first fiction writing was fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I mean, both it was fantastic in the sense of being very good, but Thank also you. fantastic Thank in the you. sense of yeah. being uh, just reality defining and. Yeah, I well, there were was a lot
0: of fantastic elements. I mean, it yeah. was like the world was trippy and kept. So I wonder, being you know, altered. being in
1: this environment, yeah. being in this kind of biracial, mm-hmm. not yet multiracial environment yeah. and being around this kind of tension and being in this environment that, you know, parents were idealistic, if not exactly utopian. I wonder about Star Trek. Uh, and you know how it hit you, and uh-huh. and how it sort of was that something that?
0: Well, I didn't I didn't watch that much Star Trek when I was a kid. The show for me was The Twilight Zone, which seemed to capture allegories of alienation and you know nuclear fear and all kinds. And was of, extremely political. And was super political. Yeah, and that was the one that was more congenial to me. I mean, uh, I did get into Star Trek a little bit, but I didn't. You know what's funny is I think I took its uh, li- what you'd say it's like, you know, great society liberal gestures the, the, the sort of, so- socialistic, egalitarian stuff very much for granted. When I first encountered it, I was like, oh, yeah, well, of course the future is going to be like that. That's we're also, headed right there.
1: You really you surprised know? me because I thought you were going to say that you were a savvy kid and you were cynical I took about him with it. a grain of salt. No, oh. no, the opposite.
0: I was like, that's just a, that's just a reasonable depiction of the future. <laughs> like national boundaries dissolve and, yeah, you, know, you don't even notice who's black or Chinese. Yeah. Of course that. You know, that's just like the basic ground you're standing on. Um, and by the time I would have thought twice about it in order to become cynical the way you propose— I think I'd stopped thinking about Star Trek hard at all, or, or, you know, if I ever had. It was just, but to me that was, it was sort of like, because I was also reading, you know, uh, implicitly utopian science fiction. I mean, you know, when you read someone like Arthur C. Clarke, it's very Star Trek-like yeah. in a way. It, you know, he just, he's such a deeply secular positivist. He just is like, of course religion and, and national difference Dissolve Arthur the future. C. Clarke I mean, wasn't very sexy,
1: though. I mean, that's no, one thing not that I wonder about. Yeah. So, I mean, so so you were drawn to the world builders. You were drawn to the well, kind of very when nerdy I was, when I was quite kind of, young, yeah. and then I and then
0: I found the the um, the you know the uh, dystopian um, world destroyers. You know, J.G. Ballard and and Philip K. Dick, and and, and that Arthur fit. C. Clarke got very corny to me immediately, and so did Star Trek. You know, whereas. Rod Serling, The Twilight Zone, still seemed relevant to, you know, my, t- my appetite for the darker kind of written science fiction. So, I mean, yeah.
1: Dissident Gardens uh, feels, you know, free of, I don't want to say gimmicks, but free of the kind of devices that you take you out of our reality. Uh-huh. Uh, it's very, it feels historical, it feels gritty, it feels, you know, these were people and places that exist. Right. And I, I wonder, um, do you miss the world of the fantastic, because it occurs to me that when you think about science fiction as a genre, I'm sometimes struck by its failure in this sense. If you tell me that you can bend reality and do absolutely anything, this is what you give me?
0: You know what I mean? (laughs) with so much of it, I mean, sort of these are the scenarios and this is the kind of... uh, Well, it's hard. It's hard to live up to that promise as it is in surrealist painting, you know, like 90% of which is like a Little Loi trick or something, and then every now and then, you really are. You know, Max Ernst will make an, or Dick Irrico makes an image that does take you to a really another uh, experience. Those are hard materials, hard methods to, to, to maximize. You know, what
1: I'm saying is that I want you to write another science fiction. Good.
0: There. Well, I mean, I just did in Chronic City. I think that was a total vision for me. It's a big. It's a. As, as big a gesture in that direction as I've ever made. And I don't see those things as being off the palette. You know, I'm just adding other kinds of tonalities, other things I can do. But you know, one of the things is when I've worked without those obvious gestures, and I did it a number of times. I mean, Motherless Brooklyn is the first time in some ways. But the Tourette's, the neurological trippiness of the language, uh, to me, was like the fantastic element in that book. And that's, what I've come to see is that I like to work with, uh, you know, a baseline prosaic reality that we all can, you know, that we all, the consensual world, and really evoke it and really make you feel a lot of mundane stuff, like recognition stuff. Oh, yeah, it's really like that. And then also have this field of the dream life or the distorting field of the visionary material in some form that is an equal pressure on the character's experience, something intangible, something esoteric that they believe in as deeply as they believe in this
1: It also speaks world. to
0: lived experience. Right. I mean, well, I think it when is. You, that's when you t- think
1: of just about the, just the inescapable unknowableness of any other person
0: and just I, the I, idea of doing something yeah. to kind of illustrate that's it. Except the real contains the unreal. So for me, in a book like Dissident Gardens, just as the neurology and the language was the field of distortion in Motherless Brooklyn. So I didn't need a rocket ship or a werewolf or something in that book. I feel the same way about Dissident Gardens, that ideology and utopianism, yeah. the desire to live in another world that's so, you know, the passion, we all glimpse it, but to live oriented that way so totally, you know, that you, that you sign on to the, you know, Communist Party, that is another one of those fields of distortion. It's like the the, the characters are tripping on on, on their... Um, Solidarity, a sense of history, the idea yeah. of actually being connected to these currents and being on the right Absolutely. side of history. That is as the, unreal...
1: And as being as the vessels yeah. of this... The idea know. that
0: you're a vessel of this gigantic, intangible movement that's happening, that you are part of a revolution, even if no one else will believe you, that it's about to come. To me, that's as, as tripped out as any uh, fantastic vision I could ever have offered. And so um, it did what I wanted... Done to these characters and their lives um, without my having to introduce those other things.
1: You talked about tonalities and demonstrating your ability to work with a wider palette. Uh, and I wonder, what do you think of as your project? I mean, do you think of yourself as having one uh, in terms of just is it something about a process of education and discovery for yourself? Is it, I mean,
0: yeah, well, I, education is a word I'd probably always flinch from, or ed- edification. I don't, you know, I think we're a very uh, use-oriented culture. Everything's a commodity or or has, you know, it's like it's uh, good for you. And books are often sold as if, you know, oh, you'll learn something or you'll be improved by it. But that's not fundamentally what uh, the expressive arts are for, to, like, fix or, or improve things. They're to um, make new things exist that don't exist. And that's my project. I mean, if, if I... If I could make it as simple as that, it's to make books that only I could have made and that are uh, utterly surprising, each unto themselves, you know, that uh, nothing I did before could predict this next gesture, and that I myself am in a state of amazement and excitement when I'm making it that proves to me that I'm not just going over old ground or shooting fish in a barrel. the exploration is its own, you know, um, value. And with the result you hope of uh, uh, you know leaving an artifact behind as evidence of your exploration that is you know uh thoroughly fascinating involving uh consternating you know that but that can make people feel an experience that no, you know nothing else could could could
1: produce and i also wonder about
0: activating
1: some natural if buried if suppressed tendency towards empathetic imagination because, you know, it just occurs to me that, you know, your efforts to describe this world that was not something you had personal and direct yeah. access to, yeah. but specifically the black New York as portrayed in Dissident Garden. In a it. book it's like this,
0: nice. and, and and this links it very strongly to Fortress of Solitude specifically, I think there is another value, you're right, that I've added into my, uh, my baseline wish to make extraordinary artifacts, and that other value is oh kind of witnessing, that I want to say life was lived thus. People really were this way. I know it, and I'm gonna make you feel it. Uh, And I think in both of, that's what takes those two books, this new one and The Fortress of Solitude, and moves them into another place where it's not that I have a, I'm not writing like a historiography or I have some thesis about history or the city that I'm trying to convince you of. There's no answer, but that just, I'm trying to produce evidence witnessing evidence that life, these kinds of lives, have, have, have very recently been lived, even if we don't know how to name it or, or, or talk about it easily.
1: Thank you very much for joining me.
0: My pleasure.